This interview was supported by the University of Washington's Center for Leadership and Athletics, a wing of the College of Education. Today on the Ambitious Coaching Podcast, we discuss mental health in emerging adults with an emphasis on the pressures that student-athletes face. Our guest shares why young adults in their late teens to early 20s are at elevated risk for mental health disorders, the signs and symptoms we might see when mental health is compromised, as well as what coaches can do to support mental health for their athletes and teams. As coaches, sometimes we try and talk student-athletes out of what they're feeling. We just want them to feel better. Um, And so you don't want to do that. You want to give them the space to be able to talk about uh, what's going on for them. It's a time of life when the human brain continues to develop in incredibly important ways. And it's also a time in which there's what we would call enormous developmental task. Thanks for joining us. Hey everyone, this is Marcia Daniel with the University of Washington Center for Leadership and Athletics. And today we have Kelly Schlorette with us, who is a board certified clinical child and adolescent psychologist. Kelly serves as clinical professor in the University of Washington's Department of Family Medicine and is a team clinical psychologist for the university's athletic department, where she works collaboratively with physicians, trainers, performance nutritionists, and the director of student wellness to manage the health and well-being of our 600 plus student athletes here at the university. Today, Kelly's going to talk with us about mental health and well-being in emerging adults, and we'll define what that means in a moment. And she's going to talk with us about the role that coaches and educational leaders play in fostering mental health for the student athletes and teams we're serving. Kelly, thank you for being here with us today. Thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. You spoke last year to our intercollegiate athletic leadership graduate students, and you began by sharing a story about a student athlete named Maddie. Can you start by sharing Maddie's story with us again? Maddie's story comes from um, a book entitled What Made Maddie Run? And that book was written by an ESPN journalist, Kate Fagan. And it's the story of a NCAA Division I athlete, Maddie Holleran. And as the story is told, uh, Maddie was both an excellent student and an excellent athlete and a young woman who was just incredibly driven. She um, primarily played soccer in high school and was really heavily recruited coming out of high school and um, verbally committed to play at Lehigh University pretty early on, but she was also a gifted track athlete. And after having just this incredible track season as a senior in high school, University of Pennsylvania um, took a big interest in her for her running and actually ended up making her an offer. And I think, you know, given the driven Um, student that she was. She was very uh, intrigued and very motivated by the idea of getting an Ivy League education. And so she ended up decommitting from Lehigh and then signed at UPenn and started there in the fall of 2013. And as is highlighted in the book, um, you know, during her first semester there, she grew deeply depressed um, as she made this 
often um, challenging transition from high school to college. And she was faced with feelings that she never had really experienced before. Um, it got to the point that running wasn't enjoyable for her any longer. And she really found herself struggling to meet the demands of, of both school and sport. Um, I think um, as the book highlights her parents and the people closest to her were really aware of her struggles, but she also did um, a pretty good job of covering up or hiding or disguising the depth of her despair. And this was particularly true of her social media where she would reportedly make posts that made it seem like things were going well for her and that all was good. Uh, she thought about quitting track at one point. Um, she essentially tried to quit at the end of her first semester, but then started having all these feelings of guilt um, and, and being worried about letting her coach down and her parents down. And so she continued. She went home over the holiday break and then returned to UPenn uh, in early January at the beginning of the semester. And on January 17th, 2014, she died by suicide after she jumped from the roof of a nine-story parking garage in downtown Philadelphia. What really stands out for me in the story is that Maddie, like all college students, was an emerging adult who was trying to manage this transition from high school to college. And we know from research that that transition marks a time of great adjustment when young people are juggling and trying to manage what I would say would be enormous developmental task. And because of that, it can be a time of real risk in a young person's life. She was also a Division I student athlete, and we know that being a student athlete comes with its own unique set of stressors. Young people in this position really um, essentially try and manage two full-time jobs between the time they need to devote to school and the time they need to devote to the demands of their sport. There are many, many others out there that are really quite similar. Collectively, these stories that are one of the many reasons why the NCAA Sports Science Institute developed a mental health task force in 2016 and came out with some consensus guidelines with regard to the mental health care of um, collegiate student athletes. And in those guidelines, two key points really emerged. The first point was really centered around the idea that mental health is part of and not apart from athlete health. So essentially emphasizing care for the whole person. And the second point that was emphasized really highlighted the idea that mental health exists on a continuum. And on one end of the continuum is uh, resilience and thriving. And on the other end of the continuum is mental health disorder that disrupts a college athlete's functioning and or their performance. You know, as you share that story, I'm thinking, well, this could be a number of stories of athletes that I've heard over the last few years that have come to the surface. 
And I also have to think that for every one of these stories that is made public, there must be countless other stories of athletes that we're not hearing about and not aware of. Absolutely. Related to that is just the whole notion that even though we've come a long way in our country in terms of acceptance around mental health, it's it still continues to be this very stigmatized topic. Because of that, I think it does prevent people from speaking out or families from speaking out about what happens to them or family members. One of the things that you mentioned seems to suggest that where a person sits on that continuum of mental health, you mentioned resilience and thriving is on one end of the continuum. And then on the opposite end of the continuum, we have mental health disorders. But the way you said that, it, it seems to indicate that mental health is a state and, and not a trait, right? It's something that can change um, through an athlete's, through their weeks, through their, through their lives, and even, I would think, day to day. Definitely, definitely. It's really the case that our mental health is more like our physical health, and it's constantly changing. I think the most important idea with regard to that notion of mental health being fluid is that in those times that we are struggling uh, with good care and attention um, and treatment, any mental health con concern can really improve and, and we can thrive again. Well, you mentioned that the NCAA's Sports Science Institute developed a task force which indicates that the, the magnitude of this issue of, of um, the number of student athletes, collegiate student athletes who are struggling with mental health, I would think the fact that we had to start a sport institute or a sports science institute around this indicates that this is a large scale problem and that we at least have a heightened level of awareness that this is something that we all need to be working together to, to support student athletes. So mm -hmm. what were the, what was the goal um, when NCAA put that task force together and created these guidelines? Like what was the goal of that? I think they wanted to improve access to quality mental health care for student athletes. And then the second goal, I think they were really focused on wanting to create a culture within collegiate athletics in which seeking care for a mental health concern was really as normative or is really as normative as seeking care for a physical injury or some, some more physical aspect of, of health. So Again, I think it really goes back to this idea of attending to and focusing on and treating the whole person as opposed to really separating what's emotional and, and what's physical. When you talk about that, when you talk about normalizing it, I think about our graduate students, many of whom are graduate assistant coaches who are working with some of the teams here at University of Washington. And in our course, our sport performance course this summer, they would, they would talk about going in for treatment after practice. And it was just, it was, it was just, this is what you do every day is you go through your practice session and then you quote, 
go in for treatment and they're referring to, you know, going into the trainer and, and getting massage or ice bath, et cetera. But I, if we could get to the place where that's how we thought about caring for our emotional, psychological and emotional well-being, like, Hey, I'm going to just get some treatment today and I'm going to do this every day. It's going to be part of my life and part of my day, part of my recovery, and even part of my training, um, how beneficial that would be for student athletes. Absolutely. I, you know, I think it would be um, incredibly beneficial. You know, the mind and the body are connected. What's going on for us emotionally impacts us physically. It impacts our performance and our physical health also impact our emotional health. And they really um, can't be separated. You refer to collegiate athletes, you refer to them as emerging adults. So can you first, can you define what that means to be an emerging adult? When I think about emerging adulthood, it's, it's a stage of life and it extends from the late teens to the mid to late twenties. And it's a time of life when the human brain um, just continues to develop in incredibly important ways. And it's also a time of life in which there's what we would call enormous developmental task. What are some of the most significant factors that impacts mental health of emerging adults and specifically collegiate student athletes? Um, and putting this in context of like the brain is still developing, identity is still developing, body is still developing. And they're often, student athletes are often in a, in a completely new place meeting new people, developing new relationships, probably away from their family for the first time. All of this is going on while that brain is still developing. So what are, um, talk to us about these factors that are really impacting mental health of emerging adults. You mentioned some of them, you know, they have to adjust to their sexually maturing bodies and, and feelings related to that. They have to define this personal sense of identity. They have to adopt a personal value system. They um, really have to renegotiate relationships with parents and caregivers. They have to take on these demands that are focused around increasingly mature roles and responsibilities. When you think about that list, and I only named a small handful of them, um, the list is really steep. And when you think about adding the extra layer of demands that intercollegiate athletics places on top of this, the list becomes even more daunting. Collegiate student athletes also having to figure out demands on their time with sport participation on top of education and sometimes even on top of work. Not every collegiate athlete gets a full ride scholarship and they have to uh, readjust their expectations for their themselves and their identity. For most of them, they come to college sports having been one of the best at their sport in high school. And then they get to college and they're sort of simply another good athlete among many, many good athletes. Lastly, it comes with enormous uh, performance pressures. And sometimes those are self-induced. Sometimes those are induced by family or coaches or teammates. And sometimes it's just 
induced by the need to maintain or earn a scholarship or um, even for um, some athletes, you know, trying to make it to the next level of play. They're also at risk for developing psychiatric disorder and really elevated risk. If you look at the research data and we look at what we would call period prevalence rates, so specifically research that looks at the rates of psychiatric disorder in emerging adults or any population for that matter over a 12-month period, the, the rates for emerging adults range from about 26% to about 40%. Wow. And yeah. So if you just even think of that in the most conservative way, it means that about one in four emerging adults meets criteria for a psychiatric disorder over any 12-month period. You know, the most common are mood disorders and anxiety disorders and substance use disorders. Emerging adults also have the lowest rates of treatment utilization of any age group. And it's particularly challenging because research supports this notion that if you get on top of these concerns early, you tend to have better outcomes. What do we need to look for? Um, What are some of the warning signs that a coach might see in a student athlete whose mental health is compromised? I really think about this in two ways. Uh, One way is you know, a cluster of behaviors over like a two-week period. And then the second category would be um, behaviors that if you see any of them, they just require immediate attention. So I'll start with the former and in that cluster of behaviors or signs and symptoms that you might see over a two-week period, a change in mood, a change in sleep, a change in appetite, too much or too little. So mood that's too high or too low or where there are rapid or dramatic shifts, you know, sleep, there's, you know, way too much sleep, somebody sleeping 12, 13, 14 hours a day or not enough sleep, right? They're not able to fall asleep or stay asleep and maybe only getting a couple hours of sleep each night. And then and then lastly, appetite or food intake they're eating too much or they're not eating enough, or there's really this intense fear of of getting fat or gaining weight. The second set of behaviors that I would think about, a decompensation or a decline in, in certain behaviors. And the things I'd focus on there would be things like personal appearance or hygiene, decline in their performance, whether that's in their sport, whether that's in academics, whether that's in um, some kind of work that they're doing, their focus and concentration, their memory, their thinking in general, or a decline in their social activity. So maybe they're um, starting to avoid or withdraw from coaches and teammates and family and friends. If you remember back to that story of Maddie, she kind of lost her interest in running. And so that was an example of a decompensation. And then lastly, um, someone's ability to cope or deal with um, just kind of daily hassles and, and stresses. I would be looking at a pattern in which there were increases in some behaviors. And so those would be things like anger, 
um, especially anger that's out of proportion to the event that um, seems to be causing it. I would think about anxiety or nervousness, um, especially anxiety that uh, seems paralyzing in some way. You know, they're not able to take a test. They're not able to perform. Increase in somebody's sensitivity to their um, environment, you know, so like the sights, the sounds, the smells. Um, maybe they, you know, avoid situations that feel overstimulating to them. And then um, an increase in apathy. They just don't have any initiative anymore. And increase in drug or alcohol use. But there's also signs and symptoms that really require immediate attention. And those would be things like um, suicidality. Even if they say they don't have a plan or they don't have the means or they don't have the intent, you really want to get them talking to somebody who's uh, trained to make that kind of assessment. You would also want to get immediate attention or immediate help with um, aggression, particularly threats of aggression or harm toward um, others. Some kind of unusual behavior that's really odd or uncharacteristic or peculiar. So an example of that might be a kid who shows up for practice um, without their shoes, for example, or um, missing some crucial piece of equipment and, you know, really um, doesn't seem to understand the importance of the fact that they don't have it. Let's pivot toward the role of the coach in promoting mental health. You have specific do's and don'ts when you describe how to build a culture that promotes mental health. So let's unpack those a bit. Let's start with the don'ts. One of the biggest ones is um, making sure that you don't uh, minimize or invalidate emotions of, of student athletes. One of the things that, that I always think about is that all feelings and emotions are okay. Um, all behaviors are not, but really trying to separate, you know, the emotions from from the behaviors and, and making sure that um, you don't minimize or invalidate those emotions. I think related to that is as adults in the world of these young people, um, we often want to um, fix things. And that, that desire that we have as, as coaches, sometimes we try and talk student athletes out of what they're feeling. We just want them to feel better. Um, and so you don't want to do that. You want to give them the space um, to, to be able to talk about uh, what's going on for them. And I think with that is really not jumping in and trying to solve the problem or offer um, unsolicited advice. Uh, you really, again, just want to give them that space um, where they can talk through it and Hopefully by carefully listening and validating their experience, that will also lead them down this road of um, some, what I would call facilitated self-discovery. You know, sometimes being able to ask them a thought-provoking question is 
actually much more important than trying to solve the problem for them or give them some advice that they're really not looking for. How about the the do's? What do we need to be intentional about as leaders to build and sustain a team culture that fosters mental health? Remembering that mental health is a state and it's not a disorder or an illness. Um, as we talked about before, it's continuous and fluid and constantly changing. You want to listen to here and not to problem solve. You want to validate and and validation's an interesting one because I think a lot of times people hear the word um, validation and they say, well, I don't, I don't want to validate something I don't agree with. And what I would really say there is that there are ways to validate a person without implying your agreement with what they're saying. And so, for example, it would be saying something like, I can understand why you thought that, or I can understand how um, it felt that way to you, right? So you're not agreeing with the statement, but you are validating it in the sense of saying that you hear it and that you understand it. I think you want to be mindful of the language you use and how you talk about certain issues. So an example there would be how you talk about uh, body fat, how you talk about weight. I think this is particularly uh, important for female student athletes. Um, but, you know, I, I would also say it's important for males too. We're seeing more and more males uh, with concerns of eating disorders. As you talk about mental health, really putting the person first and the illness second, right? The example would be, you would say that you have a student athlete with depression rather than you have a depressed student athlete. I think you really want to focus on uh, creating a culture of, of psychological safety, a place where it's okay to not be okay, that student athletes don't have a fear of reprisal if they uh, share their challenges, right? They can share their challenges and not expect their, um, to see their playing time reduced, for example. As coaches, it's incredibly important and instructive when we model what we're looking for and when we model the appropriate management of our own emotions. In a lot of ways, um, you know, like it or not, coaches are a little bit like parents and student athletes look up to their coaches and they look to see how um, coaches handle different things. And the more we appropriately manage our own emotions in uh, challenging settings or situations, uh, the more helpful it is uh, to student athletes. Creating that culture where it's okay to not be okay, that people can talk about these things openly and know um, that they'll be accepted and that they don't have to hide them and they don't have to suffer in silence. 